In today's brief, we'll talk about opinion polls, pogroms, and traitors to Ukraine. I'm Yulia, and today is Friday, November 3rd, 2023. You're listening to the Ukraine War Brief podcast, where we bring you up to speed on the war in Ukraine with added insights, explainers, and analysis to the very best of our ability. Let's start with some errors, omissions, and clarifications. On the October 29th episode, we said that Russia made significant gains around Bakhmut. We meant to say insignificant. It is reported correctly in the written brief available on Substack. We've been trying some new things, including shaking up the writing a little bit while Linnea was on hiatus. Some of it worked, and some of it would benefit from some further explanation. In the most recent episode, we reported on the riot and attempted pogrom at the Mahachkala airport in Dagestan, a republic in the far south of the Russian Federation. We mentioned that Dagestan is a majority Muslim republic, which is accurate, but that's not really why it happened. The Russian Federation has for centuries been suppressing the many disparate republics via theft of resources, eliminating local cultural and civic leadership, drawing disproportionately from their populations to provide human fuel for Russian wars and, of course, disinformation. Anti-Semitism has been widely perpetuated and promoted by Moscow, still utilizing dehumanization tactics and playing off of ethnic and religious stereotypes that fueled pogroms in the early 20th century. Dagestan is the poorest region in the Russian Federation, and with tensions already running high due to a high death toll as a result of men from the region being sent to the front, it is an easy target for manipulation from Moscow. It's pretty safe to say that regardless of the majority religion, anti-Semitic pogroms are a very real risk in any of the Russian republics, though the region has expressed solidarity with Hamas and their shared religion can't be discounted. Having said all of that, let's get to the brief starting with the news from the front. The General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, GSAFU, releases a daily report at 6 a.m. each morning that includes a breakdown of Russian losses for the past 24 hours. The losses that were reported to have occurred on Tuesday, October 31st, through Thursday, November 2nd, included 51 tanks, 102 armored combat vehicles, or ACVs, 87 artillery systems, 16 multiple launch rocket systems, or MLRS, 7 anti-aircraft systems, 69 unmanned aerial vehicles, or UAVs, or drones, and 2,480 personnel. Do you remember that scandal last year about the price of eggs being supplied to the Ukrainian armed forces? Since then, a new head of the state logistics operator, Artem Zhumadilov, has been appointed and some changes have been made. In an interview with Ukrainska Pravda, Zhumadilov stated that he is advocating for menus for the military personnel to be developed by dietitians and nutritionists as well as food supply officers, and is working to provide halal and kosher food to military personnel who have special dietary requirements due to, for example, their religious beliefs. Starting in the northeastern part of Ukraine, the Hortitsa Operational Strategic Group is responsible for the Kupinsk, Liman, and Bakhmut fronts. According to Ukrainian general Alexander Sirsky, the situation on the Eastern Front, quote, remains difficult, end quote. Russian forces strengthened their numbers in the Bakhmut area and Donetsk oblast, attempting to retake lost positions near Klishchivka and Andreevka, and conducting assaults near Pivdenne, all unsuccessful. Surprise! There has also been increased activity in the Kupiansk area, where Russian forces are taking offensive actions in several directions near Sinkivka and Ivanivka in Kharkiv oblast and Nadia in Luhansk oblast. 
These were all unsuccessful as well. Again, surprise. Shifting to the eastern and southern part of Ukraine, the Tavria Operational Strategic Group is responsible for the Avdiivka, Marinka, Shakhtarske, and Zaporizhia fronts. Russian forces continued to use Storm Z assault units, which are predominantly comprised of prisoner recruits in so-called meat assaults near Avdiivka earlier in the week. What are meat assaults? I'm glad you asked. Meat assaults refer to infantry-led frontal assaults without artillery support to suppress Ukrainian firing positions, resulting in shockingly high rates of attrition, losing 40-70% to 70% of personnel in just a few days of active operations, according to Russian sources. Among the meat, in this case, poorly trained and ill-equipped Storm Z penal units. Won't the meat run out, might you ask? On October 30th, Ukrainian Colonel Oleksandr Stupun, spokesperson for the Tavrysk Group of Forces, stated that Russian forces are training more Storm Z units just for that purpose. And after a few days of focusing on heavy indirect artillery fire against Ukrainian frontline positions and rare areas, are likely preparing to conduct another wave of assaults without equipment. The Institute for the Study of War, or ISW, wrote on November 1st that the current situation near Avdiivka is a microcosm of the Russian general staff's failure to learn anything from the experiences Russian forces endured in previous failed offensives. Various Russian elements have engaged in similarly catastrophic attacks with infantry-led frontal assaults against fortified Ukrainian positions along multiple fronts since the large-scale invasion in February 2022. For example, when Russian forces suffered significant personnel and material losses in Vuhledar, in western Donetsk Oblast, during the failed winter offensive this past year. Russian forces aren't only depending on meat assaults, however, and conducted multiple unsuccessful offensive operations with the support of aviation near Avdiivka, Keramik, Severne, Parvomaiske, and Stepove in Donetsk Oblast. Other failed efforts went down on the Shakhtarsk front near Prachistivka and Zolotanova in Donetsk Oblast and on the Zaporizhia front near Robotone. Ukrainian source Deep State reported a major failed Russian assault in the area of Mikilske, near Vuhledar in Donetsk Oblast, and preliminary reports indicate that a column of Russian tanks and armored infantry vehicles attempted to attack east of the village. Heavy fighting resulted in a reported loss of 18 armored vehicles, at least eight of them tanks, on the Russian side. Finally, in the southern part of Ukraine, the Odessa Operational Strategic Group is responsible for Kherson, Krym, also known as Crimea, and the Black Sea. Before we get into the nitty-gritty, a quick sidebar. You've probably noticed the name Krym floating around the podcast for the last few weeks. Crimea gets its name from the Crimean Tatars, the indigenous people of the peninsula. Crimean Tatars, called Krymle, were victims of genocide by the Russian Empire and subsequent Soviet Union with many of their people forcibly deported to Central Asia, especially Uzbekistan. While our team was in Ukraine, we met a Karimla, Rade, who gave us some much-appreciated insight into Karimli culture, history, and language, called Karim Tatar, and the importance of preserving the indigenous name for the peninsula, Karim Tatarlar, or Karim. While some Karimli have been able to return to their homeland following the collapse of the Soviet Union, they continue to struggle with representation in government, recognition of their language, and acknowledgement of their history. In referring to the region as Karim instead of Crimea, we are committing to recognizing the Karimli as a people and Karim as their homeland. Getting back to the frontline update. Russian media reports that the deputy commander of the Russian forces in Ukraine, Colonel General Mikhail Teplinsky, has apparently assumed command of Russia's Dnieper, they mean Dnipro, 
grouping of forces responsible for the occupied areas in Kherson Oblast. Teplinsky is highly respected in the Russian general staff and has experience in the area. He was, after all, the officer on the ground responsible for the relatively successful withdrawal of Russian troops from the west bank of the Dnipro River in November 2022. UK defense intelligence points to Teplinsky's command as an indication that maintaining territory in occupied Kherson Oblast remains a priority for Russian troops in Ukraine. We hope you're enjoying the episode. Thank you to everyone who responded to our poll on Spotify. We read every comment, email, and review, so please keep them coming. And if you're listening on iTunes, be sure to write a review with your five-star rating. It helps others find the podcast. Now, back to the brief. Moving on to the temporarily occupied territories. U.S. supplied attackums seem to have made an impact reportedly forcing Russia to relocate Ka-52 and Mi-8 helicopters from occupied Berdyansk in Zaporizhzhia Oblast to Rostov Oblast in southwestern Russia after Ukraine's successful attacks on Russian airfields in eastern Ukraine. Open Source Intelligence, or OSINT, analyst Brady Afrik published satellite photos showing the redeployed rotorcraft at their new home at Taganrog airfield. Russian state media outlet TASS former employer of Reuters, by the way, reported that arrays of rockets from multiple launch rocket systems hit fuel tanks in the occupied city of Donetsk on the night of October 31st, claiming two fatalities. Videos of a massive fire in the city were posted to local Telegram channels. Ukraine's State Bureau of Investigation, or SBI, we know that as SBU as well, published a report on November 1st reporting the discovery of a widespread scheme in which regional military enlistment offices took bribes in exchange for helping people evade mobilization. Nine military recruitment officers were implicated in the report, as well as multiple accomplices, and all of this was allegedly organized by the former head of the Kyiv Regional Military Commissariat. For a price equivalent to a mere six to ten thousand U.S. dollars, an individual could procure a forged document declaring them unfit for the military service, usually for health reasons, and potentially also get assistance in leaving Ukraine. The SBU confirmed it was involved in the assassination attempt on collaborator Oleg Tsaryov earlier this week. Tsaryov, who runs what the Moscow Times calls Soviet-style wellness clinics in occupied Krym was shot twice at his home in Yalta. Russia's Federal Security Service, the FSB, arrested one conspirator and is apparently looking for the shooter. The FSB said that Tsaryov was in stable condition, which honestly probably means he's not doing so hot. Natalia Homonyuk, spokesperson for Operational Command South of Ukraine, said on October 27th that the Kerch Strait Bridge is, quote, redundant and added that Ukraine plans to destroy it. She went on to say that Ukraine had to, quote, slowly hurry, and that it's taking careful planning to destroy the bridge. It's okay, we can wait, the result is worth it. Next up, the home front. Russian forces continued to attack civilian targets relentlessly, dropping 20 guided glide bombs on Kherson Oblast in a single day on Tuesday, including two dropped on a kindergarten in Bereslav, according to Alexander Prokudin, head of the Kherson Oblast military administration. This is in addition to other attacks throughout the country, such as repeated Shahed drone strikes in Poltava Oblast on the night of the 31st that resulted in a fire at an oil refinery in Kremenchuk. 
Only the day before, missile strikes in Kherson Oblast wounded at least 13, seven of whom were injured when a city bus was hit in the middle of the afternoon. The United Nations High Commission for Human Rights confirmed on Tuesday that Russia was responsible for the attack on a funeral reception in the small village of Hroza in Kharkiv Oblast, noting that all 59 people killed in the missile strike were civilians, saying, quote, There was no indication of military personnel or any other legitimate military targets at or adjacent to the cafe at the time of the attack, end quote. We remind you that this attack was directed by two brothers who resided in this village who decided to make some quick money of targeting their friends with Russian missiles. They painted the location to Russians as a military procession with lots of military presence. They have been since caught and will be persecuted. A new poll released by the Kyiv International Institute of Sociology, or KIIS, found that, besides the war, The most prevalent major concern for Ukrainians was corruption, mentioned by 63% of respondents. The report noted that nearly 60% of respondents are, quote, inclined to the opinion that there are attempts to fight corruption and there are positive changes, end quote. And fewer than 10% expressed that the, quote, risk of collapse of democracy and the threat of authoritarianism after war, end quote, was a major concern. So, that's good. 46% of respondents reported that low salaries and pensions were a top concern. Speaking of the threat of authoritarianism, let's talk about the Russian Federation. Some more information has emerged about Russian president-slash-dictator Vladimir Putin's fake death earlier this week. Ukrainian defense intelligence spokesperson Andriy Yusuf stated that the recent hoax was an official ploy to test the reactions of ordinary Russians, Russian elites, and Russian propaganda outlets, an internal story meant for an internal Russian audience. We don't know what the results of Putin's research were, but a new poll of Russian citizens conducted by Russian firm Yuri Levada Analytical Center found that 70% of Russians would support a decision by Putin to end hostilities in Ukraine. Wait. Redemption? No. On the condition that they get to keep the currently occupied territories. (sighs) Well, that didn't go anywhere. 45% of respondents support the actions of the Russian army in Ukraine, and fully half believe that the invasion has been, quote, rather successful, end quote. More than 10% of respondents went so far as to respond that they believe the invasion has been, quote, very successful, end quote. As a point of reference, Putin currently enjoys an 82% approval rating. I mean, not all Russians, right? Just 82% of them. One of Russia's explosives plants blew up this week. Right on the money with the name. Early on Tuesday morning, Russian media reported a powerful explosion at the Salikamsk-Kural plant in Perm region, about 2,000 kilometers from the border with Ukraine. The Salikamsk-Ural plant is one of Russia's largest military-industrial plants, producing gunpowder, explosives, and chemicals for the Russian army. According to the Russian media, the cause of the explosion is unknown. The HUR, Ukrainian Military Intelligence, reported that Russian intelligence services are preparing to launch a disinformation campaign targeting Ukrainian Minister of Defense Rushtem Umerov. Trolls plan to spread rumors that Umerov, who is Kremlin and a Muslim, is corrupt and selling weapons to Hamas, shipping those illegal arms under the guise of the Grain Corridor in the Black Sea, and working his connections in the Arab world to set up the arms deals. The proof of these claims? 
that Lebanon, home of Hezbollah, a terrorist organization closely linked to Hamas, opened its market for Ukrainian agricultural goods and, obviously, that's for weapons and not food. The goal of the disinformation campaign is to convince the West to stop transferring weapons to Ukraine, which could be more difficult than anticipated after U.S. President Joe Biden threatened on Tuesday to veto a bill with aid to Israel if it did not also include aid to Ukraine. It's worth noting that there have been no anti-Semitic rallies or protests reported in Ukraine following Hamas terrorist attack against Israel on September 7th. Speaking of Russian disinformation, Israeli state-sponsored media channel 11, or Khan, ran a news report that Ukraine has been supplying Western weapons to Hamas, after that report has been proven false. Ukraine's Stratcom requested Israel refute the fake claim and apologize. Instead of responding to the request, Israel chose to block Ukrainian IP addresses from being able to open the website of the channel. We are not sure why Israel is perpetuating Russian propaganda, especially when Russia has been alleged to be helping Hamas through Iran. It's genuinely perplexing. Chechen warlord Ramzan Kadyrov seems to be a little on edge after the anti-Semitic riots in Dagestan, praising Putin's accusation that the events were orchestrated by the West in an effort to destabilize Russia and telling Chechen security forces to immediately detain any instigators of similar riots in Chechnya, or, quote, fire three warning shots in the air and after that, fire the fourth shot in the head, end quote. According to the ISW, Kadyrov's reactions suggest that his priorities are first, maintaining the perception of unwavering support for Putin, and second, asserting his authoritarian rule over Chechnya with threats of a violent response to future incidents. While Putin has declared loudly that the West is to blame for the events in Dagestan, it's entirely possible that the call is coming from inside the house. In our last episode, we noted the startling similarities between the events leading up to the pogrom and previous Russian so-called active measures in the 2016 U.S. presidential election. Andriy Yusuf said in a television appearance on October 31st that the pogrom in Russia may have been orchestrated by someone with an axe to grind within the Russian state security apparatus, saying, quote, All these processes are actually controlled by the special services themselves, starting with the Black Hundreds of the early 20th century, which were managed by the Tsarist police. Nothing has changed today. All these actions that we have seen all these accesses and provocations of anti-Semitism and xenophobia are the handiwork of Russian special services, end quote. We have to ask who benefits from all of this, and it's definitely not Vladimir Putin. It took several hours for the local police and FSB to respond, and the rioting wasn't quelled until Rosgvardia, National Guard, forces arrived. Viktor Zolotov, the head of Rosgvardia, who has fallen into Putin's good graces ever since the PMC Wagner mutiny, is a suspect. So is FSB chief Alexander Bortnikov, who may be trying to show that Putin is losing control of the state. We don't know who exactly is behind the instigation, and ultimately it's unlikely to change Russia's commitment to the war in Ukraine. Regardless of who is jockeying to replace Putin behind the scenes, they would be unlikely to change course in the invasion, or Russia's internal or external politics. Let's talk about the news worldwide. Prime Minister of Luxembourg, Xavier Battelle, 
excoriated Hungary's prime minister and provincial peasant Viktor Orban for meeting with Putin in Beijing and blocking 50 billion euro in EU aid to Ukraine. Quote, What Orban did gives a middle finger to all the soldiers who die every day in Ukraine. End quote. Battelle added he would never join the so-called Orban-Fico alliance, referring to Robert Fico, the new prime minister of Slovakia. Fun fact, Battelle is the longest-serving openly gay head of government in the world. He's joined by Leo Varadkar, Taoiseach of Ireland, and, at least on paper, Serbian prime minister Anna Brnabic. But President Aleksandr Vujic holds the real power there. Edgar Zrinkevics president of Lithuania, became the first openly gay head of state in the EU in April 2023. Instead of telling ghost stories, Time published an article written by Simon Schuster on October 31st. I wish they published a ghost story instead. It was definitely a nightmare. The article, citing anonymous sources close to President Zelensky, claimed Zelensky was having a harder time convincing allies to keep aid flowing. Yeah, that really seems to stick, provided that President Biden just threatened to cancel a whole military aid package to Israel if it doesn't also include aid to Ukraine. It turns out that Schuster's sources included Oleksiy Arostovich, who was generally well-liked by Ukrainians early in the invasion due to his calming demeanor, but began pushing Russian narratives, advocating for Russian language in Ukraine, and was discovered to have attended workshops led by Russian world ideologist Alexander Dugin in Moscow prior to the full-scale invasion, which is not at all suspicious. Even less suspicious, his position in government didn't exist. There is no such thing as the advisor to the office of the president. He declared that a Russian airstrike was actually caused by Ukraine, and shortly following his removal from his made-up position, he fled the country. Fun fact, Arostovich announced on November 1st that he will be running for president of Ukraine whenever the next election is held. Sir, read the room. You're currently being slaughtered on Twitter. Yes, Twitter, not X. It will never be X by Ukrainians. Repeatedly. No one's gonna vote for you. But back to Schuster. On March 16th, 2014, he tweeted, quote, Just paid for a coffee in Russian rubles. Welcome to the new Crimea people. Like it or not. End quote. Some of his coverage from a three-month period in 2014 included the following. Violence in Ukraine. Can Russia or the West make it stop? Referring to the Euromaidan movement. Right-wing thugs are hijacking Ukraine's liberal uprising. Referring to Azov that didn't even exist then? Ukraine moves closer to civil war. No, Russia will not intervene in Ukraine. And my personal favorite, many Ukrainians want Russia to invade. Schuster, a Russian national who came from the USSR to San Francisco in 1989, has been pumping out Russian propaganda disguised as journalism since at least 2014. We are hoping Ukraine is investigating whether Schuster was allowed into Ukraine during the full-scale invasion using a U.S. passport and journalistic credentials. There are several Russian nationals with U.S. passports and journalist credentials in the country who merit a closer look. Kirill Budanov I know you're listening. Give us a call. 
Italian Prime Minister Giorgia Maloni told a pair of African politicians during a September 18th phone call that there was, quote, a lot of tiredness over the war in Ukraine and that she had some ideas up her sleeve on how to, quote, find a way out. Those African politicians weren't actually African politicians. However, they were Russian so-called comedians, Vladimir Kuznetsov and Alexei Stalerov, hoping to stir up trouble. Here is the thing. Maloney, a fascist and political opportunist who did use Kremlin money to fund her election, quickly realized the sentiment of the Italian public towards Russia and the invasion, turned around and strongly funded Ukraine. We doubt that Maloney, especially given the backlash she's facing for this gaffe, is seriously considering off-ramps at this time. It's most likely that she was saying whatever she thought the so-called African leaders wanted to hear. Russia is trying hard to push the illusion of a consensus that Ukraine's allies are tired of funding the war, and therefore should just give up. The reality is that there is a minority of hard-right Republicans in the US and a whopping two countries in the EU, we're looking at you, Hungary and Slovakia, that are blocking aid to Ukraine. Especially when taking into consideration deepening ties with pariah states North Korea and Iran, the Kremlin is looking increasingly desperate. The entire narrative about the world being tired of the war in Ukraine is especially designed for you, American voters and politicians, and for you, European voters and politicians, to stop, in fact, funding Ukraine's defense. What does tired of war means? Because we in Ukraine are also tired of the war. You can turn off the TV. We can't. So this entire narrative is designed to actually say, we're all tired of the war in Ukraine. Let's just let them go and have them surrender to Russia. And who benefits from that? Russia. War fatigue is a made-up media term to make you, in fact, withdraw your support. And last but certainly not least, let's talk about military tech. During a conference call, acting Prime Minister of the Netherlands, Mark Rutte, assured President Zelensky that the Netherlands will continue supporting Ukraine, and the escalation in the Middle East will not become an obstacle. He also shared that Dutch F-16s will arrive at the Romanian training center next week. Once the training center in Romania opens, Ukrainian pilots will be able to train on F-16s at two locations. Pilots began training on a U.S. Air Force base in Arizona a short time ago. Bedankt, Rute. Lots of news in drone tech and electronic warfare, EW today. Ukrainian Minister of Digital Transformation Mikhailo Fedorov, whom our team spoke with at the Lviv IT Forum in late September, said Ukraine is testing a new, domestically produced drone designed to detect and map mines more quickly. The ST-1 drone is equipped with an inductance coil and sensors that allow it to fly at low altitudes and maneuver around obstacles. If it's successful, it can demine four times faster than humans and at a much safer distance. Ukrainian sappers, field engineers who are responsible for, among other things, demining, have a tragically high casualty rate. They have to crawl on their hands and knees through trenches in order to successfully demine areas along the front and many have been killed and wounded. We don't know the timeline for the release of the technology. 
Fedorov also said that domestically produced Piranha AVD-360 electronic warfare system designed to protect armored vehicles from Russian drones has successfully passed field tests and is ready for mass production. The system is kind of freaking cool. It creates an electromagnetic protective dome of up to 600 meters in diameter. When an enemy UAV enters the dome, it can't receive commands or transmit data, and either hangs in the air, crashes, or makes an emergency landing. Kind of like Putin's political career. In a confirmation of what we already knew, the UK Ministry of Defense Intelligence update said Russia's Lancet one-way attack drone has been one of Russia's most effective new capabilities fielded in Ukraine over the last 12 months. The Lancet is a simultaneous targeting and attack UAV, identifying targets, then delivering its payload. Russia has been using them to target high-value priority targets, such as Ukrainian artillery. The Lancet represents another incremental step in drone warfare as drones previously used for reconnaissance now also have strike capabilities. Colonel Vladimir Valuch, commander in the HUR, told Defense News that Turkish Bayraktar TB2 drones, which helped Ukraine achieve military success at the beginning of the war, are not as efficient now that Russian forces have strengthened their air defense. Valuch said that the drones are still useful, but they're not used as often and are used for different types of missions. It is possible that Russia's enhanced electronic warfare capabilities are restricting their use, and it's also possible that Ukraine is working on adapting the drone or has already found a way to make them operational again. Russia assumed that their EW systems would work to block the JDAM GPS-guided glide bombs the US provided for Ukraine. It turns out, not so much. You see, the JDAM, which stands for Joint Direct Attack Munition, has an inertial guidance system in addition to GPS. Inertial guidance systems determine the bomb's location by tracking its movement from its starting point. Critically, inertial guidance systems don't use electromagnetic waves to connect to satellites. So the JDAM can still hit their target, just with a little less accuracy. It's hard to understand why this came as a surprise to the Russians. During the start of Desert Storm, the U.S. used JDAM to destroy Iraq's Russian EW systems. That was 20 years ago. Maybe appointing someone with no military experience as your Minister of Defense isn't a good idea after all. And that's the brief for today. Remember to check your sources and don't fall for propaganda. Join us on YouTube and TikTok for more Ukraine content and live news reports. And if you haven't already, please consider subscribing to our work and Substack. We'll be back on Monday with more updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone. Na dobranić!